Thank you, Adam. Good morning, everyone. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, as we reflect on your word this morning, we ask that you would help us to see who we are. The identity that you have given us, who you have made us to be, that in turn we might live your ways as light in the midst of darkness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Bible uh, is full of lots of lovely, wonderful, beautiful things that it says to God's people, that it says to Christians. But in the middle of those, there are a number of terrible warnings. Uh, I don't know if they spring to your mind. Um, we've, we've studied a few of them in the last couple of years as we work through Matthew's Gospel. A lot of them are on Jesus' lips. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, as, as these people come to him and say, well, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons and do miracles and prophesy in your name? And Jesus says to them, away from me, I never knew you. Now, these people who claim to do supernatural works by the power of God, but didn't know Jesus. Jesus says that's a terrible thing. Or Matthew chapter 18, we saw that last term, right? You can't claim to be a recipient of forgiveness and in turn not forgive yourself. They had that terrible warning at the end of Matthew 18, right? Likewise will my Father in heaven do to you as he threw this man into jail to torture him if you do not forgive those who sin against you. Or Hebrews chapter 10, right? If we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury about to consume. Right? You, you can't play games with God, is the nature of these warnings. You can't pretend to have one foot in the God camp and then keep another foot in the world. He will not brook it. He will not. It's not okay. You cannot worship two gods. You cannot serve two masters, he says. Now, if you were with us last week, we finished last week with one of those terrible warnings. Come with me to Ephesians 5. I hope you've still got it open there. And look at the very last verse that we read last week. Ephesians 5 and verse 5. He says, Know and recognize this, Every sexually immoral, impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now remember, he's talking to Christians here. He's talking to God's people. This isn't a warning for some people out there. This is to those who say that they follow Jesus, who say that they find their delight in him, who say that they have given their lives to God who say that they worship the one true living God and yet want to keep some idols, want to indulge self, want to keep a couple of rooms of the house, to use Joe's illustration from a few weeks ago. Just, just my own, I just want to keep the man cave for me. Is that okay? God, you can have the rest of the house, but I'll just keep this bit. You can't. Now, as we pick up this week, that warning that we saw last week that went to those specific individuals is getting broadened to the rest of us. We want to start with the warning. However, having heard the warning, we're then going to read through our passage to learn how to respond in our identity and in our actions. So have a look with me first as we come to this warning that last week was for those specific individuals. This week, he broadens out to us all. 
So he says, here's the warning, it's got two parts to it, chapter 5 and verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things, therefore do not become their partners. You see, here's the warning for you. Maybe you were sitting there thinking, well, that's okay, just as well. I'm not sexually immoral, impure or greedy. I mean, I think most of us have got some level of that, but, uh, you know, maybe that's not for me. But take, heart, take note about this, though, he says. Firstly, don't be deceived. There are so many different views out there. I'm sure that's not news to you, is it? You ever had any conversation with anybody for any period of time and you will quickly find differences. This isn't quite talking about just having a different viewpoint to someone else on some minor matters. This is arguments designed to lead you astray, but notice that they are empty. In the end, they have no substance. Now, mind you, empty arguments can still be very compelling. I reckon I could mount a pretty good argument for lots of rubbish. I could convince you about all sorts of things that hold no fact, right? Because I, I, I can talk, right? And they, they can sound great. But actually, the ability of the person to talk is irrelevant. It's about the argument itself. What's one of the slogans of our age? Uh, was it love is love? What, what? I mean, how do you argue against that? Of course, love is love right? But gee, it's empty, vague, it's got nothing to it and yet whole entire ways of thinking in our life seem to be based on this notion, at least in our society, love is love. Now, they might be very clever arguments, they might be put forward by very erudite philosophers, very wise sages of our age, they might sound powerful and impressive but in the end they are empty because they don't reflect the true and living God. I'm going to read Romans 1, 18 to 25, if you like, and hear about how humanity, in exchanging worship of the Creator for worship of the idol, has lost its capacity to think. Our thinking has become senseless and darkened. And notice, God's wrath is coming because of these things. These aren't trivial matters. Sadly, these empty arguments are happening within the church at times. Was it just these last couple of weeks a bishop was appointed in a particular diocese of Australia, I won't name it, who's on record as saying that we really should get rid of the creeds from Anglicanism? You think, what are you on about? Well, because they're not inclusive enough, right? Love is love after all, remember? How can we have these statements that... Anyway, the wrath of God is coming and so you don't be deceived with empty arguments. I'm glad you're here. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir in one sense. You're here to think and to learn and to grow, to have your mind changed and your heart changed, to get to know God better, to love Him and His people. You're already here, so well done you. But don't stop. He says, don't be deceived. And secondly, in this warning, he says, don't become their partners. You see, again, so often these empty arguments, they're within the church. They're on offer by people that you would think should know better. A bishop is going around saying such nonsense. Sadly, even among us, there are individuals who have chosen to believe the empty arguments and to walk down those paths. And most of them in time have chosen to leave us. 
The, the modern version of it for us is, is the, the, the worship of the alternate sexual lifestyles. I mean, I, obviously it was still the case for Paul as well. He's just gone on from writing about sexual immorality to writing about being deceived and led astray. Now, I'm not talking to those who are, who are, who are struggling with same-sex attraction. Okay? I'm not talking to people who uh, have their own battles or even people who are struggling with, their, with singleness and the desire for a family. I'm not talking about people who have urges that they are, they are struggling against and fighting with in a godly way. But it's those who make an idol out of their sexual immorality, who identify in it, whose very notion of self is caught up in their impurity. In the end, as we stand firm, we will end in conflict. They don't want just acceptance, they want us to celebrate and to endorse them. No, hear the warning, don't be deceived, don't partner with them. And how is it that we're going to stand firm in the face of it? It's only going to get harder for us. If you haven't realised it yet, our world is heading down a particular trajectory that is more and more and more going to bring us into conflict with them or them into conflict with us. We're standing still, they're the ones moving. How are we going to fight, stand, be godly? Well, it begins with your identity. You've got to be sure of who you are. So let me ask you, who are you? There's lots of different ways of answering that question, isn't there? I suspect that if I got you to chat with each other, and we won't because of time at this congregation, the other congregations will get to do this, but if you were to chat amongst yourself and just answer that question, who are you? I'm not going to clarify it for you. You just answer it the way you want to. We might come up with all sorts of different answers, right? Some of us would talk, would just give our names. Who are you? Well, I'm David Luke Blouse, right? That's just who I am. Or, uh, or perhaps your relationships. I'm the son of Peter and Terry. I'm the brother of Jeremy and Rosanna. I'm the, uh, maybe you're immediate. I'm married to Edwina. I'm the father of the these children. Some of us might define ourselves by our jobs. Who are you? I'm the assistant minister of St. Barnabas Ingleburn with Glen Quarry. However, it is lots of different ways of identifying of who are you. But we have a particular way of identifying that is given to us by God. Let me show you in this verse this way of thinking. It's a very powerful image to know who you are. Look at verse 8 with me. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so live as children of light. Now, who are you? You're a light. Isn't that an interesting thought? In the darkness, once you were darkness, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a simple image, but like the best one, so powerful. Right? Darkness, you think about darkness, it's, it's where nefarious deeds happen, it's where the wickedness and evil, it's where bad people do bad things. Darkness is where we get lost, is where we can't see the way. You ever been in pitch black? It's a terrifying experience. Uh, we went to Janolan Caves a number of years ago and just at one, for one, at one moment they do it, just, just very briefly for a bit of an experience. Right? Everybody turn your lights off and the house lights come down and it is, it's... You have actually no idea what to do next. You know that 30 seconds ago there was a person next to you, but now you're not sure they're there anymore. You know that there's a wall, a meter, but now you, darkness disorients us completely. Darkness is where we are f afraid. 
I mean, it's, 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 as, as little people, just from our earliest memories, right? I'm scared of the dark because that is where wickedness is. And then the light comes on. It doesn't necessarily always show a pretty picture, doesn't it? There are times when the light comes on in the midst of darkness and what it reveals is terrible. But we need the light because as that light comes on, we can clean it up. We can deal with what's there. We can now see to be able to change. You hear one of the kids vomit in the night and you think, oh, here we go. And you walk into the room and it's pitch black. You don't know what you're facing yet. And then you turn the light on. And it was the kid in the top bunk who did it all over the person in the bottom bunk, right? And you think, I just want to turn the light off and go back to bed. But I won't. I've got to deal with what's in the light. I've got to clean it up and move forward and live life. In fact, it's even crazier because he says, you are light in the Lord. This is a light that as it shines on us, shines out from us. And so he says, live as children of the light. For it goes on in verse 9, the fruit of the light consists of goodness, righteousness and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. You are light and so live in the light. And you notice that what light does is in the end exposes what's in the darkness. I mean, that's why we turn it on, right? You never turn a torch on because you want to see the torch. You use another torch to see that torch you turn the torch on to see what the light is going to expose and so he says actually this light that comes from God into our lives exposes what's around us have a look at verse 12 uh, sorry verse 11 he says don't participate in the fruitless work of darkness instead expose them it's shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret everything exposed by the light is made visible for what makes everything visible is light. And so it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You see, who are we? Is we are people who from death have been brought to life as Jesus shines on us, cleanses us first, and then in our living and in our words exposes what is around us. I don't think this instruction to expose the darkness is a command to go door knocking down the street and pointing out people's sins to them. Right, all right, what's happening in this house? You, you're an adulterer and you're a murderer and you don't mow your lawn, right? It's not, it's not a case of... It's as we live the lives that Jesus has called us to, in contrast, as we speak the gospel, right? We won't even speak of the atrocities they do. But as we live lives for God they will be exposed. It starts here, it starts with this view of yourself. Who are you? Did you wake up this morning and you said to yourself, I am light? I mean, that was after the scales. I looked at, ooh, I'm light. No, not that sort of light, right? I am light. Jesus has shone on me and so as I live his way, it will be reflected, I live to his glory that his glory might be seen in how I use my body and my words and my decisions and my actions. Maybe I, I want to ask you a series of questions. Just, just, these are sort of the rhetorical questions you might well ask yourself. I'm, I'm very fond of this phrase, preach the gospel to yourself. I like saying that, I like doing it. I like waking up in the morning and preaching the gospel to myself. I don't do it often enough, but it's a great way to start the day, right? 
you, you, you think, all right, when was I converted? When did I become one of God's people? Actually, it's really interesting because you know what Ephesians says, what we've already seen? You know when you became one of God's people? Now, come have a look at chapter 1 and verse 4. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. When did I become one of God's people? He chose me before existence began. Wow. The billion, billion planets in this universe, of the 10 billion humans that have lived, before any of them existed, he chose me. Predestined to be holy and blameless in love before him. What was my problem? What did I need God to save me from? Remember what we saw in chapter 2 and verse 1? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Right? Here's a way to preach the gospel to yourself. What was your problem, David? Your problem was that you could not please God. You were lost. You were cut off. You had no hope. You were incapable of loving God. You had no merit to delight God with. You were gone. You were under wrath. And yet, how does God feel about me today? Well, we saw it in chapter 5 and verse 1, as he says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Chosen before the world began, someone who was dead in their sin and trespass against God, now loved by him. How could he possibly think that of me? How could he possibly be satisfied with who I am? Because Christ shines on me. Because Jesus suffered the wrath that belonged to me. The righteous for the unrighteous. Because his performance is now given to me. His righteousness is now placed on me. Because when God looks at me, he sees the pleasure that he feels in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that who you are? I am light. Now here's the thing, right? That identity, it has to begin there, by the way. If you don't have that sense of yourself, if you don't know yourself in that way, the instructions on how to live are all just moralism. But if you do, well then that very identity is what moves you to live in the light. You almost don't have to be told to do it. It's who you now are. And so as we move into verses 15 and on, we, we walk into another one of these application sections where he's telling us how to live. It's a slightly strange application section though because it, it, it pulls out the tension that Christians live in. You see, we live with this very strange tension in the Christian life, almost, almost seemingly paradoxes, these con contrasting things that are all true at the same time, right? We, we are light but we live in the midst of darkness. We have an urgency to our work and yet we rest in God. It's like we're both at war and at peace at the same time in our lives. Let me see if I can draw it out for you with, with three of the tensions in these next few verses. Things that are both true and that we have to live out as we walk Christianly. Well, the first of the tension is this, the days are evil. Everything around us is evil. And yet we're told to give thanks for everything. Have a look at verse 16. He says, verse 16, 
right? Make the most of the time because the days are evil. But then we come down to verse 20 and he says, give thanks always for everything to God the Father. Well, it's true that we live in a wicked world. You, wherever you want to look, you're going to see evil globally, nationally, locally, personally, in your relationships, at your work, right? in yourself, in your neighbours. At Christians, we even get our own special kind of evil. We call it persecution. We get it even worse than everybody else. We live in an evil world, and yet we are told to give thanks. Now notice that it's give thanks for everything, not give thanks in everything. I don't know if that's an important distinction. But it doesn't mean that you've got to be sort of a, a, a shallow, there's always this thanksgiving. There is a time to grieve and there is a time to be sad. There is a time to be angry over injustice. There are plenty of other emotions and feelings and actions and attitudes that we are to have. But at the same time, as we lean on and learn of our sovereign good God, the, the omnipotent, all-loving Father in heaven... We can see even the evils of the world and turn it to thanksgiving for our God. Because even in those evils we trust that he is both able and willing to work for good, for his own purposes and for our eternal good. Somehow, even in the midst of the evil and the wickedness that besets us, he is at work for good. And so we have that tension. We live amongst days that are evil and yet we turn with thanksgiving in everything. Our second tension that we have to live out as Christians. Uh, what have we got there? Analysis and exaltation. Well, on the one hand, we are called to be very analytical, cold, calculating, to use our minds to think, to analyse. But on the other hand, we are called to rejoice to emotionally give ourselves to the exaltation and delight of our God. The two things are generally quite hard to achieve together. They kind of often rule each other out. Have a look again, verse 15, right? The mind that we're supposed to use, pay careful attention then to how you live. It's not just breeze along and don't ever care, don't ever stop, don't ever think. No, verse 17 he says... Don't be foolish, understand what the Lord's will is. Use your mind, think, understand yourself and the times and your enemy and the Lord's will. We need good, sober, deep, insightful thinking. People accuse Sydney Anglicanism and more college, right? You're too intellectual. I'm sorry, it's a problem to think deep? To engage deeply? That's the opposite of being drunk here, right? The drunk who kind of just loses their mind. But at the same time as being analytical, and I think by and large we're pretty good at that bit, we also need to be exalting. I mean, listen to what he, the picture that he paints in verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. Which, by the way, I think is one of the instructions in the Bible that I have never seen anybody obey. I mean, when I walked into church today, nobody sung hello to me. <laughs> hey, Joseph! There you go, Joe sings all the time, but it's not necessarily psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. 
But you get the picture, right? This, this delight in the Lord that just making music in your heart. Having our hearts, our emotions, our feelings captured by who he is, by his grandeur and his splendor, rejoicing in it, delighting in it, just letting go. Not just always analyzing and thinking and dissecting, and that's good and that's bad, but just swept up in the joy, not just the theory of salvation, but the deep-seated thanksgiving that flows out of being saved. If you have a great theory of salvation, but you're not saved, your theory is pointless. Now, here's the thing, right? It's a tension. We have to have both. It's not dry academia, but it's also not emotional frivolity. For so many Christian traditions, it ends up down this path of emotional experience that basically means don't think, just live. Now, if you're somebody who is very cerebral, very uh, analytical and brainy, there's very little emotion, don't brag about it. That's a weakness, not a strength. Can I encourage you to seek to mature your heart's capacity for joy in God, to find your delight in Him, to be moved by what He has done for you? But at the same time, if you are somebody who emotionally is all in but has little interest for study, really doesn't care about the brain, can I say to you, don't brag. That's a weakness, not a strength. You need to mature your mind's capacity for thinking and understanding the work of God. We don't want to be neither exalting and hollow nor deep but lukewarm. Right, second tension. Third tension then and finally. We have this weird tension as Christians where we never lose control but we are always ceding control. Never lose control. We we, we don't just lose ourselves but we're always giving ourselves up. Have a look again, verse 18, as he says, don't get drunk with wine. Now what's wrong with getting drunk? By the way, I think it's not specifically wine here. It's not that Paul had a problem with wine, right? You can go and get drunk on anything else. Whiskey, no worries. Vodka, yep, that stuff's great. Wine, ah, no, right? Okay, that's not the point. It's just don't get drunk. What's wrong with it? I mean, you know, you just loosen up a bit. You're going to just lower your inhibitions, have a good time, get the warm fuzzies. Well, actually, the problem is exactly that of losing control. Did you see what it does? It leads to reckless living. What it does is it sends you back to the darkness. Now, the Bible's got lots to say about drunkenness. Uh, much, much bigger topic than we're going to cover in our time today. I, I want to just give you two diagnostic questions, really simple ones, really easy ones to work out if you have a problem with alcohol. The first one is this. Do you ever find yourself asking, well, how much is too much? Like, you know, how, how much? Is, is, is another one? Is it two, three, four? How much is too much? The second diagnostic is, when was the last time that you chose to not have alcohol? Not that you couldn't, right? Like the circumstances weren't right or you didn't have any, right? People will often say, oh, I can give up any time I want. I, I can choose to not have a drink whenever I want to. Right, well, when was the last time that you chose not to? 
There's one thing to say, I can choose not to, it's another not to. Okay, now if you ask the first question or you haven't chosen to not have any in a very long time, then let's have a chat. You might well have a problem. Now we don't lose control, but what we do is we cede control. You are not your own. In fact, what we are is not filled with spirits, but filled with the Spirit in verse 18. What we do as Christians is we give ourselves away. We don't lose ourselves, we give ourselves away. Now this, I think, is the heart of it all, really, at the end. Filled by the Spirit. He is the one who's going to point us to the glory of Jesus. He is the one who's going to speak God's Word into our head and into our heart. He is the one who is going to grow us into Christ-likeness day by day, transform from one degree of glory to the next. He is the one who will every day show you who you are. That we might grow in thankfulness, that it might overflow in exaltation. You see, heed the warning today. Don't, don't be caught by empty arguments and certainly don't become their partners because you are light and so walk in the light. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work in the Lord Jesus who found us when we were in darkness, brought us into his marvellous light and as he shines on us, teaches us to then shine on those around us. Father, please, especially today for each one of us, would you, would you fill us with a deep sense of the identity that who you, of who you have made us to be? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.